0: speak loudly in case it's Absolutely. not, um, g- feel free to go ahead, grab a sandwich, get seated if you haven't already, but we have two great speakers today, so I wanted to go ahead and get started with them. Today we're going to be talking about Todd Meyer's new book, ECOFADS, I'm hold up a copy for everyone. Very exciting, he has a few copies afterwards if you want to talk with him. Um, he is the Washington Policy Center's director of the Center for the Environment. Todd is one of the nation's leading experts on free market environmental policy and is the author of several books on the subject. His in-depth research on the failure of Washington State's 2005 green building mandate continues to receive national attention. He also formerly served as the director of communications for the Washington State Department of Natural Resources. Following Todd, we'll have Pat Michaels, who is the senior fellow in environmental studies at the Cato Institute. He is the past president of the American Association of State Climatologists and was also a research professor of environmental sciences at the University of Virginia. Pat's also a contributing author and reviewer of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was awarded the Nobel Prize in 2007. (coughs) Pat's writing has been featured in several major scientific journals, as well as publications like The Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and USA Today. And with that, I will turn things over to Todd.
1: All right, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, everybody being here. She said, um, I uh, come from Seattle, so I have a little bit of advantage in some of the perspective on some of these environmental policies is because Seattle obviously is one of the hotbeds of environmental consciousness and if you've ever been to Seattle you can easily understand why it's absolutely gorgeous we have Puget Sound we have the mountains if you've ever heard of Spotted Owl right that's uh, Washington State is sort of the heart of the fight over the Spotted (coughs) Owl and the reason is is that we take our natural resources very seriously Washington state has a long history of being a a timber economy. And in fact, um, Timber is still an important part of our economy in Washington State, Um, and at the same time, um, so too are hiking and recreation and all these things, and the question in Washington State for that reason in many ways is sort of ground zero for a lot of these initial fights because it's where people have long recognized the value of natural resources uh, as an economic driver, (coughs) but they also recognize the value of natural resources in looking out their window and going out and being part of nature and sailing and and hiking, and hunting, and fishing, and all of those sorts of things. And so I've tried to take the experience that I had in working at the Department of Natural Resources and some of the things that we have seen in Washington State before the rest of the country and try to learn why it is that we're making the decisions that we make. Because so often what we see are that Uh, despite our best intentions to do what's good for the environment, we end up going off track and wasting a lot of money, wasting time on policies that don't work. And then when we recognize that they don't work, in fact, instead of changing them, we cling on to them uh, uh, even harder. And I tried to figure out why this was for a long time. And basically what I realized after a while was that because environmentalism, has become not just a a political cause in the traditional sense of trying to achieve a positive change, it has become a social cause in how it reflects on individuals. And the social benefits of appearing green are now as important and in many cases more important than actually helping the environment. And so the decisions that we make about environmental policy are now guided by trying to acquire those social benefits. And the result is, is that we hear lots of silly claims about environmental policy and why we ought to do one thing rather than another. And it reminds me, coming from the Northwest, anybody from Alaska here? Do we have any Alaska folks? Alaska, OK. So you know Chilkoot Charlies, right? In Anchorage, have you ever been to Chilkoot Charlies? You've been to Chilkoot Charlie's. See, most people don't admit that they've ever actually been to Chilkoot Charlies. <laughs> that's right. Okay. <clears throat> so Shoku Charlie's is a bar in Anchorage and they have this big front door that's made out of wood and they have their motto carved into the door. And their motto is, we cheat the other guy and pass the savings on to you. And I think that that uh, pretty much sums up a lot of what we hear about environmental policy. We're constantly told, don't worry, you will benefit from this, the environment will benefit from this, but somebody else will pay the costs. And as we know, more often than not, that's not the case We end up paying the costs, and unfortunately, the environment oftentimes doesn't benefit. So I just want to give you sort of a framework of the problem at a very high level. So Paul Ehrlich, many of you have heard of Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bomb in 1968. In that, he was concerned about the increase in population. We just passed another worldwide population mark where the population of the planet has exceeded seven billion. A number of people were wringing their hands talking about the doom and gloom that's going to come from the population and how can we continue to sustain this level of population um, given the limited resources that are on the planet. And he said at the time, in 1968, I have yet to meet anyone familiar with the situation who thinks India will be self-sufficient in food by 1971. But he was wrong. The population of India is now double what it was when he made this claim and uh, their standard of living has grown nearly tenfold in that period of time. Their per capita GDP. They're doing better than ever before despite the fact that their population has gone up. But instead of recognizing that something else is going on that is making his claims untrue, what he says now is, well, the population bomb was too optimistic. In many ways, the situation is far worse. And he just said that just three years ago. So he sees India even today as the emblem of environmental destruction and the coming destruction. Well, National Geographic Society sees it different. In 2008, at the same time that um, Paul Ehrlich was saying that it's even worse than ever before, in their ranking of the greenest industrialized countries in the world, National Geographic ranked India at the top. And what they said was that the cold water bath that many Indians have because there's no electricity, the matka they use because they can't afford a fridge, and the long walk they take to work and back because private transport is expensive and and, public, and transport is shoddy, are the reasons that they are the most environmentally friendly denizens of planet Earth. So what's going on here? Two environmentalists look at the same country and come up with the exact opposite conclusion. Paul Ehrlich says India is the example that we ought to fear, and National Geographic says they are the example that we ought to emulate. The problem is that they are both starting with a conclusion about what the science says and about what's important, and then applying it without ever actually looking at what's on the ground. The ideology and the approach and the concern is more important than the evidence that they actually see on the ground. Their judgments are not based on science. Air and water quality is actually better in New York than Mumbai. So in some cases, when you say that India is the best, greenest planet on the earth, they're not looking at some of the traditional sources of of, uh, environmental quality like air and water quality. And Bjorn Lomborg has noted that uh, the litany of environmental claims is really exaggerated that the things that we're worried about simply haven't come to pass. For instance, in the Northern Hemisphere, forestry, coming from Washington State, which is something of interest to me, the amount of forest land is actually expanding, not declining. It's not true in the Southern Hemisphere, but it's true in the Northern Hemisphere. And the Northern Hemisphere, ironically, is where you see the largest expansion of economies. So something else is playing a role. Rather than looking at the data and then making the judgments, something else is going on. And that's trendy environmentalism. It is important to understand that I'm not arguing that environmentalism is not a fad. But if my environmentalism is not a fad, we shouldn't treat it sort of like an impulse buy at the checkout counter. We should treat it seriously. And if we don't treat it seriously, if we don't see if what we're doing actually helps, if we're not double checking our work and changing when we need to, then it shows that we're treating it like a fad and not like something serious. In fact, what we find is is that being green is very important to how people make their decisions about public policy. So I, this, I have this book, this is my new book and so I'm obliged to read from it a little bit. Um, I have about 15 that I have brought with me so if you're interested grab one when you get out of here. If you are too slow um, just give me your name and I'd be happy to send one to you. But Let me just talk a little bit about what we found about the role that being trendy plays in environmental policy. So two researchers last year from the University of Toronto did a study where they looked at how important it was to be perceived as green and the, and the impact on people's decision making. And they created two groups of students. One group was given $25 to purchase from a conventional store that had mostly non-green products. The other group was given the same amount of money to allocate for purchases at a store selling primarily green products. After making their selections, the students were put through additional experiments they were told were unrelated. These experiments tested both their altruism and the effect that buying green had on the students, and the impact they found was significant. While merely exposing students to green products increased their level of altruism in subsequent experiments, actually buying green products reduced their altruism significantly. The researchers concluded that people in the experiment were more likely to, quote, cheat and steal after purchasing green products than after purchasing conventional products. Having committed an act they considered altruistic, like helping the planet, the participants had the moral license to cheat a bit elsewhere. The students seemed to reason, after all, buying these products has already proven that I'm a good person, so if I cut corners elsewhere, I'm still doing good for the planet. Ironically, being green had become a selfish act. Now, I don't tell this story and talk about this in it, to say, don't buy green products. In fact, I think one of the greatest things about the prosperity that we have in a free market economy is that it allows us the disposable income to choose the values, right? We can buy more than just the product. We can buy the values associated with that. And I actually think that that's a very positive benefit of the free market prosperity that we have. But we also have to recognize the emotional element of making those decisions. And if we ignore or pretend that there is not a strong emotional element to how we make decisions, both in terms of the products we buy and the policies we make, we are misleading ourselves about what our true motivations might possibly be. And In fact, what, this can be pretty significant, there was a study earlier this year from a couple of economists looking at people who buy a Prius as opposed to other hybrid vehicles that have a similar gas mileage, similar size, similar elements, very similar cars. But the one thing you know about a Prius is, is you can always identify it, right? It has a very unique shape. And what they found was is that in Colorado people were willing to pay thousands of dollars more for a prius as opposed to an essentially equivalent hybrid because the prius had that look what they were buying was the image in fact there's a in a parking lot where i used to park in seattle there was a, a prius that had a, a vanity license plate that said high bread b r e d right i mean it wasn't they weren't just doing good for the planet they were showing that they were blue blood right green is sort of the new blue blood that was how important it was to them to show off. And that image was what was, what was important. So, what happens is, is that this causes us to make poor decisions when it comes to what we actually do because what we emphasize is the image rather than the results. So, in Washington state, we happen to have the nation's greenest prison. And they put solar panels on it for a cost of about $880,000. I calculated the cost of carbon emissions using the price of the European carbon market, which is about $20 per ton. Over the life of those solar panels, they will reduce about $6,700 worth of carbon emissions. Okay? If you use California's estimate of $30, then you can add 50% to that. But they paid $880,000 to get $6,700 worth of environmental benefit. Does that make sense? Does not make sense. Okay? uh... in washington state we also happen to have uh... what many other states have which is requirements to build buildings to green building standards we've looked at them we found that in fact in virtually every school district where there are green schools the green schools use more energy per square foot than the non-green schools and i can if you have questions about that i can talk about why that is later but but we're paying more and we're actually getting less and a study actually put out by the state found that the payback period for the best schools was about 30 years. The average lifespan of a school is about 20. So these buildings never pay themselves back. Lastly, beating up on solar panels again, McKinsey, um, which does, we had done a couple <coughs> reports on the best strategies for reducing carbon emissions, um, and the NRDC was also a part of this, that uh, commissioned this study, they found that solar panels were one of the worst ways to reduce carbon emissions. And it's kind of hard to see, but if you can see, actually I'll to try to point it out here, solar PV, photovoltaic solar is at this end. This is cheapest, this is most expensive, that's solar PV right there. So it's one of the most expensive ways to reduce carbon emissions. And yet, where are most of the subsidies that we, that we give right now, both at the state and federal level? to solar. And the question is why? Because you can point to it. Right? You can see solar panels on a building or on a house. In fact, if you talk to solar installers, they will often tell you that there are people who have asked to put solar panels on the north side of their house because it faces their neighbors, even though it doesn't face the sun. The uh, GAO put out a report this year highlighting some of the problems with this approach. They wrote in talking about climate policy and how we make our climate policy, they said the mix of technology, economics and policy expertise cannot be found completely in one agency or entity. Funding priorities don't represent a consistent approach or rational prioritization. In other words, they're all over the map. And the problem with this is, is that instead of saying, here are the things that we can do, right? The chart that I showed you before, where McKinsey said, these are the the cheapest things we can do. These are the most expensive. Let's get the most bang for our buck so that we're getting the most environmental benefit. They're all over the map. They're doing a whole variety of things. Decisions are being made based on the image and the political and the perceived political popularity of those things rather than whether they actually help the environment. And GAO says, without further improvement in how federal climate change funding is defined and reported, strategic priorities are set and funding is aligned with those priorities, it will be difficult for the public and Congress to fully understand how climate change funds are accounted for and how they're spent. Right? We're spending a lot of money and the GAO says, we don't know if we're achieving our goals. The good thing is that there is an alternative. And the alternative is to harness the creativity that exists in the free market. Because actually, we see all the time the free market is doing more with less. Right? Economics is the study of the allocation of scarce resources. And environmentalism is born of concern about scarce resources. So those two things should go together very well. And yet, I see a lot of times people don't think think that those things are at odds when, in fact, they work together. And let me just give you one example real quickly of water bottles. So water bottles, some of you have got plastic water bottles, are sort of. Uh, one of the um, environmental community's biggest concerns. And you've seen the ads for like Brita water filters where they say every year we use enough plastic and plastic water bottles to stretch around the earth this many times. And so there's a concern about landfills. There's concern about use of resources. But the free market has actually provided a, a wide range of options for this. If you're concerned about the use of plastic in landfills, you can buy a Brita water filter. But obviously, that doesn't work all the time. People are still buying bottled water. They either forget to refill it in the, their reusable container in the morning, or they're not anticipating it, or whatever else. They want water at a particular moment in time. Well, if you're concerned about the amount of plastic that's in there, you can buy an Aquafina bottle. And it actually says on the side Ecofina. And since I uh, am a geek about this, I wondered what the heck is an Ecofina bottle. And what they have done is a couple of things they have made the shape so that there's a little indentation in the middle. And that indentation, people think, is where they put their hand, but in fact, it's like an arch. And if you think of the aqueducts, right, an arch becomes more stable when you push down on it, and the water pressure on the inside pushes out on that arch and strengthens the whole bottle, meaning they can take plastic out of it. And they say that there's 30% less plastic in those bottles than in previous bottles. But if you're, if you're still concerned, you say, Todd, that's fine. Less of a non-renewable resource is still a non-renewable resource. I would like something better. Then you can go to Dasani water bottles. And Dasani water bottles now made out of 30% um, uh, ethanol. So if that, it's a PET bottle, right, a PET, you've seen this before. It's polyethylene terephthalate. And the polyethylene is like ethanol. That's 30% of the bottle, and Coca-Cola has figured out a way to make that 30% out of a renewable resource, sugarcane. That's what the free market can do. If you don't want to use plastic bottles, there's an option. If you want to use less plastic in your bottle, you can do that. And if you want to make it out of a renewable resource, you can do that. That's the power of creativity. And none of these organizations did it primarily because they, they woke up one morning and said, I'm concerned about the environment. I need to create a policy or a product that's concerned about the environment. They all did it because they saw an opportunity to profit in the free market. I'll finish with this. I think Reggie Jackson is an overlooked candidate for the Nobel Prize in economics. And the reason is this. He says, uh, he was asked one time about facing Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan, the greatest strikeout pitcher of all time. And uh, didn't he like facing Nolan Ryan? Because after all, Nolan Ryan was a fastball hitter and uh, pitcher and he was a fastball hitter. And he says, every hitter likes fastballs just like everybody likes ice cream. But you don't like it when somebody's stuffing it into you by the gallon. That's how you feel when Nolan Ryan's throwing balls by you. This is essentially the idea behind the 2009 Nobel Prize in economics, believe it or not. Uh, Eleanor Ostrom uh, argues that there is no one size fits all approach, there is no cookie cutter approach. If you apply green building standards, they may work in some places but not in others. If you apply a standard that says that you can only use this much plastic and water bottles, it's going to work sometimes and not in others. If you apply a standard that says here's how many biofuels of these different types we need to create, it will work in some areas but not in others. That's fundamentally the problem with government directed approaches is that they are a cookie cutter approach. And sometimes you like fastballs and sometimes you don't. And sometimes the green policies work but sometimes they don't. And when you use the creativity of the free market giving everybody an option and encouraging them to incur the costs, that's the best way to come up with real environmental solutions. And the problem today is is that when we make decisions about public policy, we're choosing those trendy environmental ideas. We're posing a one-size-fits-all approach. And ultimately, the result is that we're not seeing the carbon reductions that we wanted. We're focusing on technologies that are the worst at reducing carbon emissions. And we're ignoring lots of opportunities to do more with less, which is at the heart of the free market. And that's why I think that if we have a fresh start on the environment, a way that harnesses that creativity rather than a top-down approach, we can move beyond trendy environmentalism and do what's best for each and every one of us, and each and every one of us can find the ways to do what's best for the environment. Thanks so much.
2: You're up. Hello, I'm Pat Michaels from Cato and George Mason. Uh, I would like to get my. There we go. Ah, I'd like to talk uh, specifically to many of the staffers here uh, and to tell you that ecofads, the term that Todd uses in his very good book, which I really, really liked, um, have policy effects, they have science effects, uh, and they extract political costs. If I were a staffer, And I saw an eco-fad come along. I had run away as quickly as I could. And I'll give you an example of how this works. That one. Remember that one? Uh, This is Waxman-Markey, 3% emissions reduction below 2005 and 2012 on to 83% below 2005 levels by 2030. Well, that's nice. That's the kind of legislation you get out of a fad. And then the fact checkers come in after the fact. Because the political process, when it's, when it's responding to the FAD, does not want to be stopped. So here's what Waxman-Markey did. I'm going to show you why it didn't pass the Senate. Uh, and it was because it was a response to a FAD. Um, these are the emissions allowed in Waxman-Markey. Uh, by the time we get on out to 2050, which is 38 years from today, the per capita emissions it would allow would be the per capita emissions of the average American in 1867. Now, if you asked anyone, any staffer, what technologies do you propose to use to get us to the average per capita emissions of 1867, they would do the response on television that the Cato scholars like to exhibit from their opponents. They would look at you and they'd go, ah, uh, because no one knew. Furthermore. It was not because of the faddish nature and the desire for groupthink to go forward. There was no calculation done as to how much global warming this would actually prevent. Now, I'm using here the, um, the sensitivity of 2.5 degrees from Wigley's uh, old 1998 model. It's never really been griped about too much. Um, if we did business as usual, we would have a warming rate of about 1.58 degrees C, C per 50 years. If the U.S. only did Waxman-Markey, that drops to 1.54 degrees. This is Waxman-Markey at the 83% reduction. Now suppose every nation of the world that has obligations under the Kyoto Protocol does Waxman-Markey and succeeds. Then the warming drops to 1.5 degrees. It's meaningless. So you had something that had an unrealistic goal and a meaningless effect. And guess what happened? Uh, it didn't get much further. Here's the reason that it was meaningless. These are China emissions and these are United States emissions. This is through 2009 and you can see that we are actually back to where we were around 1996. In 1996 the Chinese were at less than half of our emissions. By today they are at, in 2009 they were at 140 percent. I haven't seen the numbers for 2010. I guarantee you when the 2011's come out, they're going to be at about 160%. We become irrelevant. And so what you do has very little effect. And boy, it did have one effect though. Remember this thing? I know this is the Presidential Approval Index from Rasmussen. Strongly approve minus strongly disapprove. And I know that half you staffers get up and look at this thing before you go to the bathroom in the morning, Okay, (laughs) Well, Waxman-Markey passed on June 26, 2009. The index is a three-day running average. So on June 29, 2009, that was the first day that the Rasmussen tracking index had three complete days of Waxman-Markey for the people to think about. Where that green line crosses the red line and where the president's approval rating goes negative, is June 29th, 19, or 2009. The first day that it had the data, and as you can see, it has never been positive for one day since. Oh, it gets worse. Let me bring it closer to home. Let's bring it to the House of Representatives. These are the uh, generic congressional ballots from Rasmussen. Uh, here we are in, in spring of 2009. Here's the first time we get Waxman-Markey into it on the 28th of June. It goes, switches from Democrat to Republican, and it has never, ever come back. It was tied for two weeks recently in a virtual tie last week. Now it's again at 5%. Never, ever came back. So as a result, there were, there were prices to be paid for responding to the fad. Let's take a look at this, this district right here, Virginia 05. Perriello voted for cap-and-trade and for health care. He lost to, uh, to Hurt. He was only an incumbent for one district. Rick Boucher did not vote for health care, but he voted for cap and trade in the coal mining district of southwestern Virginia. A 14-term congressman and a person that no one who had met him would say was an insignificant intellectual figure lost because of cap and trade. Here's the the bottom line on what happened. On November second, two 2010, in the House virtually all the close races went to the Republican and in almost all the cases against a person who voted for cap-and-trade. In the Senate virtually all close races all, no, all the close races went to the Democrat. Why? What's the difference? They both voted for health care. They didn't vote for cap-and-trade. That's the power of getting onto FADs before you get your facts straight. And so then the President says on November 3rd, when asked about cap and trade, there's another way to skin that cat, which means to, from the Congress to the EPA. So now the FAD is so permeated that despite the legislative failure, despite the electoral failure, we now move it and take it one step removed from the people and bring it into the agencies. Uh, and so what the EPA did is it had an endangerment finding from carbon dioxide on December 7th of 2009. Uh, and according to the Supreme Court decision mass of the EPA in 2007, if they find endangerment, they have to regulate it to the point of no endangerment. Well, this is uh, the nice thing that was brought to the, to the Copenhagen Climate Conference, uh, where the president had to have something to show for the fad, which is now sweeping the world. Uh, He announced on the evening of December 18th, 2009, that the conference was a success. And he said, oh, sorry, got to go, hopped into Air Force One, firewalled the engines because they had to beat the snowstorm, and they didn't. This is a picture writ large of what happens when you pay attention to FADs, failure. They also compromise science. You know, what happens when the FAD takes over, nobody is going to speak against it at a hearing, particularly in an appropriations hearing. And so what happens is public choice begins to take, take over. Nobody wants to threaten the gravy train. Uh, and we produce documents that are extremely biased. This is what serves as the basis for the EPA's endangerment finding on carbon dioxide. It's a publication called Global Climate Change Impacts in the United States. Watch how fads make you pick one side of the science issue. Watch how bad this becomes. I'm working on this project at Cato as we speak. Uh, this, this, I have a mirror image document that takes all the science that was ignored. Here's the cover of my version of it. You notice down here on the bottom, this is a temperature history from the United States. This is Global Climate Change Impacts in the United States. That's the title of it. Here's what they, the Global Climate Change Research Program did for Global Climate Change Impacts in the United States. They showed you the global temperature record, just to mislead you. Uh, Anyway, I have found so many things wrong with this. I won't belabor the time too much because I know know we're going to have a lot of question and answer. That there is more science that was left out of the EPA document than was in it. Their document has 569 references. My mirror document, which goes through the referee literature and finds all the science that they left out, right now is at 571, and I'm only about halfway done with it. See, fad science does bad things. Uh, so, my conclusion is very simple. Eco-fads ex- extract a substantial political cost. Take a look at Waxman-Markey and what it costs, and they, 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 eco- they promote scientific bias, as in the EPA document, um, and they debase the currency of science. Because when it comes out that you're missing all these references. Your endangerment finding is exceedingly flawed. Wow, we've paid a great price for this fad, haven't we? We got legislation that cost a party the control of one House of Congress. We had legislation that couldn't do what it said it would do. And we have compromised science. I think ecofads are something that we re- really need to pay attention to as we go forward in the political life of this nation.